This morning we are beginning a brand new five-week series of messages on an Old Testament book of the Bible. There are only two books in the Bible named after women. One is the book of Ruth, and then the book that we're going to look at in this series called Esther. Esther is the story of how God saved the Jewish people from a genocidal maniac named Haman about 400 years, 480 years before the birth of Christ. And right up front, I'm going to tell you the big idea of this book. There is one overriding truth that this story hammers home to us, and that is God is always at work in spite of appearances. When God seems silent or even distant, it doesn't mean that he's absent. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.28, God is always working things together for the good of those who call him their God. Now as we read and study parts of the book of Esther, we are going to find that it is filled with human beings who make dubious decisions, people with questionable motives and character. It is difficult to find a pure hero in in any particular character, including Esther. And yet, in spite of the flaws of imperfect people, God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. One of the interesting and important aspects of the book of Esther is that God is never mentioned. Not once, nowhere in the ten chapters of this book is God even mentioned. No one prays, no one talks about the temple or worship or sacrifices or even Jerusalem. There's not even one tiny miracle. Other than the fact that Esther is Jewish, there is nothing about this book that makes it seem that it should be included in the Old Testament. In fact, there are some places where it seems the writer has to work a little extra hard to avoid mentioning God. So why is that? Did the writer forget about God? We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Esther. The author is not mentioned. Did he or she forget to put God into the story? In order to answer that question, I want us to recognize that throughout the Old Testament, whenever God shows up to rescue his people, he shows up in spectacular fashion. Think about Israel's history. On one occasion, God parted the Red Sea. On another time, he led his people with a pillar of fire. Really dramatic stuff. And here in Esther, we discover that even when God seems absent, he is in fact working just as powerfully as those other more dramatic moments. God is always at work weaving things together for the good of those who call him their God. Have you ever felt like God was absent in your life? I'm guessing we all have. After all, we're dealing with a God who is invisible. We don't get to see his face uh, until after death, and that can be tough at times. We are only human. Sometimes God seems far away. And then to top it all off, we follow Jesus who tells us that in this world we will have trouble, but don't lose heart. He has overcome the world. The last words of Jesus to his followers in Matthew 28 was, I will be with you 
always. And we know that Jesus lived on this earth for just a short time and then went back to heaven. And it's comforting to know that he is with us. It's not always easy when we can't see the person with whom we have this relationship, but his promise is sure. Faith is never an easy thing. Faith is thinking highly enough of God to trust him with our life. And faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. It's everything to God and always has been. Trusting God to come through for us is how we are called to live. Let me ask you, do you ever wonder who, why God sticks with us? Even when we are not always at our best, why does God stick with us? Even when we forget that he exists and we go our own way. In the story of Esther, we don't find any of the characters even searching for God. And yet, even then, we see the faithfulness of God at work because God is always working on our behalf. No matter how badly we've screwed up, We can't write ourselves out of God's plan. God is continually gracious to people who don't even ask for his help. And furthermore, often don't even deserve it. He is working to bring all things together according to his purpose for those who love him as imperfectly as we may be. That's the big idea of the book of Esther. And you'll hear me say it over and over throughout this series. God is always at work behind the scenes. Now today we're going to start by looking at chapter 1 and getting to know an important character in this book whose name is Xerxes. Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Turkey. He was the ruler of Persia the dominant superpower in the world at that time. He came to power in 481 B.C., and it was quite a kingdom. Persia, which is modern-day Iran, ruled the ancient Near East. At this time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he decided to give a banquet for all of his important friends and government officials. He invited the military uh, leaders of the Persians and the Medes. All the princes and nobles of the provinces were present. Xerxes was relatively new to power at this time in his reign, and he was looking to make a name for himself. He had inherited the kingdom from his father Darius. And Xerxes was looking to make a name for himself by expanding the kingdom, including some great plans for how he was to go to war against the Greeks. The Greeks were the nearest thing to another superpower at that time and had been shown to be very difficult to conquer. His father Darius failed to defeat them, and Xerxes was looking to finish the job that his father couldn't finish. That's what the banquet was all about. He was going to wine and dine the governors and the influencers and the military leaders as a way to show off his might and his power. He was rallying support for an upcoming war. He was rallying the troops. 
For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. That about sums up everything you need to know about Xerxes. He was about 30 years old at the time. He's only been in power a couple of years, and he feels the need to make sure that everyone knows that he's the boss. Xerxes is the king of the largest and richest and most powerful kingdom ever known. So what does someone do if he has all the power in the world? Xerxes throws a party, a six-month party, to, to display his glory and his majesty. Verses 5 through 8 explain just how extravagant these bashes were. There were gold couches and hanging gardens, marble patios and wine, as much wine as you could ever want, served in golden goblets. And certainly by the end of this 180-day feast, to celebrate his own splendor and majesty, can Xerxes be anything else but a god in the minds of those who lived in his kingdom? But hold on, trouble is brewing. Queen Vashti also decided decided to give a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So while the king is having his party, the queen is hosting her own party. Here's the deal. Every one of us has a kingdom. You do, and I do. We all have a place in our life where what we say goes. We all have a place where we influence people. We all have our own little kingdoms. Let me ask you, do you have a favorite chair in the living room? Do you have your own TV in the man cave? The kids sit on your favorite chair and you say, hey, that's my chair. Someone invades your kingdom, your space, and for a moment, things get a little uncomfortable. Let's see what happens when kingdoms clash in this story. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from all the wine he was drinking, he commanded the seven eunuchs who serve him to bring Queen Vashti to him, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and to all his guests, for she was lovely to look at. Drunk Xerxes sends the seven off to fetch his wife. Presumably, it took seven guys to carry the royal chair. So they went off to get the queen, and it's clear why. He wants to add her to the parade of his great things. Xerxes wants to parade her around to the guests as if she's some kind of trophy. Talk about degrading and demeaning. And Vashti is having none of it. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now you've got to love the writer of Esther. The author just spent all this time elaborately building Xerxes up, the most powerful man in the world. His kingdom knows no bounds. He is seen as nothing less than a god, and we are invited to behold his splendor and his majesty. Bring me my wife. And her response, not a chance. The eunuchs come back empty-handed. She's not coming. It's really humorous, except 
of course, Xerxes isn't laughing. Xerxes is humiliated. He's putting on this show because he needs his commanders to obey him in wartime. And here he is, a guy who can't even get his wife to obey his drunken commands. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to hold a cabinet meeting and ask advice on what to do with Vashti. I can't help but picture his advisors as like the three stooges all running around, bumping into each other, trying to tell him what he wants to hear. But rather than deciding alone, he immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs. Memucan answered the king and his nobles, and he said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. So if you please, if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. Now, what do these wise men suggest? Instead of saying, hey, why don't you go talk to your wife and work it out? They say, she has embarrassed you. What if this gets out in the empire? So they assure That's exactly what's going to happen by getting Xerxes to sign this decree. Furthermore, the decree says Vashti may not appear before the king again. That'll show her, which, if I'm not mistaken, is probably exactly what she wanted all along. I think that was going to be just fine with her. Now, let me try to bring this 2,500-year-old story up to date and apply it to our lives. Esther chapter 1 illustrates two important New Testament truths that stand out to me from this story. First is an encouragement, and the second one is an exhortation. First, the encouragement. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 tells us, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? The mighty kingdom of Xerxes will, in just a few chapters, align all of its might and all of its power against the Jewish people. There will be a decree passed from none other than Xerxes himself in all of his splendor and glory and majesty that will make it legal to kill Jewish people across the entire kingdom from India to Greece. State-sponsored genocide. But the truth of the matter is this, the mighty kingdom of Xerxes has no chance. The Persians don't have a chance of succeeding with this plan. Why? Because if God is for us, then nothing can stand against us. Look at what God is already doing in this story. Long before this edict is utter, uh, this edict um, to destroy the Jews, God is already at work to prevent it from happening. If not for a drunken king issuing a degrading command 
that his wife come and put on a show for the boys, then Vashti doesn't need to refuse and embarrass the king. And if the king isn't embarrassed, then there's no need to search for a new queen. And if there's no search for a new queen, then Esther never becomes queen. And if Esther doesn't become queen, then all the Jews would die. You see, God is already working to prevent what is about to happen. The Bible says he sees all of our days even before one of them has come to be. That's how powerful our God is. All of the might and the splendor of Xerxes can't compare. God used Xerxes and his doofus wise men to put the pieces into place that God would use to save the nation. If God is for us, then who can be against us? I don't know what's going on in your life today. I don't know who or what is against you right now. But Esther is a story about God working all things together for the good of those who love him. Truly, if the Lord is our shepherd, as Psalm 23 tells us, we don't have to fear anything or anyone. Whatever kingdoms conspire against us will fail because our king truly is glorious. He truly is majestic. The splendor of our king makes all other kings and kingdoms look feeble by comparison. Did you know that the book of Esther is read each year in Jewish synagogues? At the beginning of the Feast of Purim, they read this book to remind themselves that if God is for them, and he is, then nothing can stand that aligns itself against them. Maybe in our faith tradition, we need to start including something like a Feast of Purim, celebrating the reality that if God is for us, then nothing will ever be able to stand against us. If I started such a feast, I think I'd read Esther and then maybe Romans chapter 8. Can I read a portion of that passage to you this morning? Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, says this. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Listen, does, does that describe you today? Are you having trouble? Does it mean that God doesn't love you? Of course not. Be encouraged that God is already at work behind the scenes on your behalf. Are you having trouble or are you being persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, Neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. 
Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know what forces that you may feel are coming against you today, but I want to encourage you to let Esther be a source of encouragement to you. Go read it again today. Have your own Feast of Purim. Celebrate the fact that God has your back. So there's the word of encouragement. Now let me exhort you. And the exhortation comes from Jesus when he was teaching his disciples to pray, and he said this, pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we must ask the question, which will it be, thy kingdom or my kingdom? By teaching this, Jesus uh, teaches that ultimately there are only two options when it comes to kingdoms. It's either my kingdom or it's God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven where God reigns and governs or the kingdom of self. See, we live in a world that teaches us that the only kingdom that matters is my kingdom. We hear that only the strong survive. Look out for number one. Who's most important in that statement? It's never the poor. It's never God. It's me. My kingdom. If it's up to me, if it's to be, it's up to me, as the old statement says. Jesus shows us and teaches us that there is an alternative. There is a kingdom ruled by the Prince of Peace, and it is now accepting whoever wishes to be governed by a loving king. It requires that we lay down our crown at Jesus' feet, that we humbly accept his governance of our life, and it's worth it because he is a king like no other. What a difference in kings. Xerxes was a king who took life, signing death warrants for entire groups of people, as opposed to Jesus who laid down his own life for his people. Xerxes conquers countries through violence and fear. Jesus invites us to be on a journey with him and not at the tip of a spear. The only spear involved was the one that pierced his own side on the cross. Want to know why it's safe to pray for his kingdom to come? Because that's the kind of king that we serve. What fear is there in surrendering my kingdom to the one true king who loved me enough to take a cross for me? Do you want to be part of the one true kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus? Here's the good news. The place is filled with former despots and petty tyrants, people who once ruled their tiny kingdoms with an iron fist. He welcomes each and every one of us and assures us that we will be treated with dignity and respect and that we're going to love it in his kingdom. And so just simply pray today, Lord Jesus, I trust you with my kingdom. Incorporate my kingdom into yours. Fold me into the greater one. And I do so with total confidence that you love me enough to protect me and care for me. See, Xerxes was an example of my kingdom, the kingdom of self. 
And notice what happens here in this first chapter. This chapter begins with an elaborate description of the greatest kingdom on earth, throwing the greatest party on earth to celebrate the supposed splendor and glory and majesty of their king. But how does it end? It ends in humiliation and in embarrassment. The emperor has no clothes. His 180-day parade about himself ends not with a coronation, but with a realization that he isn't even the kind of person who garners the respect of his wife. Let me close with, a, with as close as I dare to come to an in-your-face kind of statement. Some of you today are living as if you are Xerxes. You're working to expand your kingdom, and you're doing it in slightly more subtle ways. You're trying your best to conquer and control those you feel are your subjects and bring them around to your greatness. You're putting on quite a show to try to impress those in your kingdom, puffing yourself up in an effort to maintain control and manipulating others to strengthen your kingdom and conniving and lying and scheming and posturing, call it what you will, in an effort to get others to do what you want them to do. And I'm telling you what I think deep down you already know. Your parade is not going to end with a coronation but in humiliation. But it doesn't have to be that way. And really, it's your choice. In the end, it's humility or be humiliated. So the final exhortation is this. Be the kind of person who prays, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in my life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do trust you with your kingdom. Help us to incorporate that kingdom into ours, our life, and into the the petty kingdoms within us. Fold us into the greater one. And as we do that, give us total confidence that you love us enough to protect us and care for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.